me to Galatians chapter 2. I was just blessed just a moment ago before I came back here. I peeked my head over um, to see our kids back there worshiping and singing and doing hand motions and our older ones serving our younger students. And it was just a a blessing to me to go back there and see that. So um, God is honoring uh, the work and the ministry of Living Hope Columbus. And I hope you're you're blessed to be a part of that too. I want to remind us as you're turning to Galatians 2 or turning your phone on and getting there that right after church today, we're going to flip this room, put some tables in here, and we have training with 1040 Global. Uh, So 1040 Global is a mission partner that we financially support, and we have for about a year and a half, that they do ministry uh, to those from Muslim or um, Hindu backgrounds mostly. Many people from Middle Eastern countries call Northwest Columbus home, which is why we started our ministry center next door last year, why we do so much with Welcome Warehouse and Dublin Bridges is to partner alongside people that are ministering to those from different countries that have settled here as immigrants and refugees. But one of the rub points that we still need to figure out and we need to grow in as a church is how do we effectively engage those folks beyond just giving them a bed, beyond just giving them a couch. We ultimately want to give them the gospel. And so we want to make sure that we're learning and growing as a church family to make sure we do things uh, in a way that's honorable to their culture, um, but also uh, honoring to Jesus as well by using the platforms that Jesus has given us to take uh, the gospel to them. And so even if you haven't signed up, you're welcome to stay. We'll buy your lunch. Training will last from about 11.45 to 12.45. You'll be on the road by 1 o'clock. You can ask questions of Patris. He used to be a Hindu, and uh, now he loves Jesus and serves the Lord, so he can answer so many of your questions that you may have, and I think it would be a a good time. So I encourage you to partake in that as well. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, we're going back to God's space As we're just studying verse by verse through the book of Galatians, we're going to do 10 verses here in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And we'll start in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 2, and God's Word says this. It's Paul speaking. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders." I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. Verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false teachers, those were the Judaizers, some false teachers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to those people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, and I love a little bit of sarcasm in here by Paul here in verse 6, what they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. Side note. We've been preaching through Galatians now. This is our fifth week. I think in five weeks, I've said the word circumcision more than I ever had in my whole life. Verse 9, welcome to church. When James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, they asked only that we remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the day, God, for the gathering of your church in your house for your glory. God, I pray now that as we walk through these verses, Lord, that your spirit would teach us. God, that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures, Father, than that your spirit would take truth and put it in our hearts. 
And God, would you give us those soft hearts, the receptive hearts we need this morning? God, not only to hear that truth, but that that truth would make its way from our ears down to our hearts and into our souls today. God, that as we leave here, Lord, that we're living in obedience to Jesus in every aspect of our lives. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've been reading Galatians 2, I've been thinking about this question throughout this week. Have you ever been so convinced of something that no one could change your mind? Have you ever been so convinced of something that no one could change your mind to the point where you're so convinced that something is true that no matter what, that is a hill that you will be unmoved from? We all have those things that we have just convinced ourselves are 100% true. Uh, just some, some lighthearted examples. Maybe it's in regards to your favorite sports team. We all have opinions and things that we think are true. Maybe it's your, your favorite vacation spot. You have an opinion that you believe is true and nobody can change your mind where the best spot to take a vacation is each and every year. It's the beach, by the way. You might have an opinion and you might really be convinced of what is the best restaurant to visit in all of Columbus, or maybe you have convinced yourself what is the greatest music genre. More recently, in the past 12 months here in our nation, we have convinced ourselves of so many things that are true, maybe in regards to politics, to presidents, to masks, to vaccines. Ha, we went there. <laughs> We've all convinced ourselves of these things that are true, but let's take this question maybe a little bit deeper. Have you ever had such a strong conviction about something that no one could convince you otherwise? It's not just believing that something is true. It's when you have this deep-seated conviction in your heart that no matter what happens around you, no matter what happens to you, no matter what is said to you or about you, because your conviction is so strong, no one can move you. You are immovable on that conviction. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a few years ago, for me, that was church planting. And I don't share this part of my story often. Some of you in here are aware of this portion of the story, but about three and a half years ago, three years ago, when we were starting this journey to plant Living Hope, I had one of those convictional moments where I had to really ask myself, is church planting a conviction that God had placed on my heart that no matter what, I would be immovable to what God had called my family to do? And due to a variety of circumstances, and we won't get into those today because I don't think it's appropriate to do so, but we were confronted by multiple outlets with this question, are you sure that you're really called to start a church? Because we're not really sure you are. And you know, even though they said that to me, you know what my response was? Yep. Because I had this conviction that God had placed in my heart and implanted into my soul that no matter what was said to me about church planting, no matter what was said about me, no matter how many doubts or different voices were in my head, my calling and my conviction were unwavering to what I was supposed to do. And in fact, because my conviction was so strong, it caused me to dig my heels a little bit deeper into the dirt and say, you will not move me from what God has called me to do, period. It drove me to do that, and you couldn't convince me otherwise. I wrote down this phrase that serves as a platform for us today. It's, you can't stop me because God has called me. And, and that's the posture I believe we see here in Galatians 2. You can't stop me because God has called me. 
The conviction to what God has called me to do is so strong that no matter what you say to me, no matter what you say about me, you can't stop me because God has called me. And here in Galatians 2, we see this kind of pivotal moment in the ministry of Paul to the church in Galatia. That he was so confident of his calling to the Gentile people to take the gospel to them that nothing would stop Paul. To the point Paul was going to have to see, did he really believe this was true? Was he willing to stand up for the conviction that God had put on his life and the calling that God had given him? You weren't going to stop Paul because God had called him. Let me catch us up where we've been here in the first chapter of Galatians because we took a couple weeks off. The first chapter of Galatians really covered three pivotal events in the ministry of Paul. And what Paul's doing is he writes this letter to these Galatian churches is he's actually looking back at a moment in history that happened in Acts chapter 15. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, three specific things occurred. First off, we saw Paul going off on his first missionary journey, being sent from the church in Antioch. That was right before Acts 15 and Acts 13 and 14. Where Paul and Barnabas left the church in Antioch, they were commissioned and sent off because the Holy Spirit had called them to go to the region of Galatia and to start churches. They were met with opposition. They were met with pushback. But what did they do? They persevered. Why? Because God had called them and nothing was going to stop them. They ended up planting several churches. Then what we see in Acts chapter 15 is when Paul returns back to give a report of what God had done among the Galatian people and across the whole region that the Judaizers had entered into the scene. These were false teachers that taught that salvation was found in Jesus. But not only that, you also had to adhere to Mosaic law meant circumcision and following the law of Moses, Acts 15. So Paul rightfully gets frustrated, irritated, stands up for what he knows what is right, but ultimately heads in Acts 15 to the church in Jerusalem. That was the main church of the day, kind of the mothership church of all the churches. He heads to the church in Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and church leaders to settle this dispute once and for all. Did you have to be Jewish to be saved or... Was it just salvation found by faith alone in Jesus Christ? And God's kingdom was now not only reserved for the nation of Israel, but God's kingdom had now opened up for all peoples everywhere, not just the Jews. And so those are kind of the three things that have happened up to this point here in Galatians as Paul's looking back on the book of Acts. And now in chapter 2, he kind of gets a little bit more ground level for us as to what happened when he had that meeting at the Jerusalem Council, the church in Jerusalem. He's given us a little bit more insight into the conversations that took place, why he went. And really, Paul, what he's doing here is he's digging his heels in the ground. And he's reminding the Galatians that God's kingdom is not just for the Jew, that God's kingdom is opened up to all people of all nations to experience all of Jesus forever. It's not just reserved for the Jewish people alone. And that's good news. I don't know if you know this, but you're probably not Jewish today. And if you had to be, there's a lot of stuff you'd have to do. But because of Jesus, we don't have to do that anymore. We're not bound to the law of Moses. Instead, we are free in Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem. And he's seeking three things from the church leaders. Three things if you're a note taker, write these down. First off, Paul was looking for support of the message. Support of the message. The message he was preaching. Look again at verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again, there's a key word, to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. We don't really know what event Paul is referring to that after 14 years he decided to go to Jerusalem. There's a couple things that could have happened here. First off, Paul could be saying, hey, after my conversion, Acts chapter 9, 
After my conversion on the Damascus road, I then went up to Jerusalem. We're not really sure. It could be after the time he spent in Arabia after his conversion. Galatians 1.17 talks about that, where he was learning from the Lord and learning the gospel and the intricacies of the mysteries of Christ. We're not sure. Paul could be saying 14 years after my first visit to Jerusalem, Galatians 1.18. If you remember, we said Paul spent 15 days with Peter in Jerusalem, not to learn from Peter, but to teach Peter. It's pretty wild. Peter was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul went there to teach Peter how to properly understand the gospel to the Gentiles. Either way, what we do know according to verse 1 is this was not the first trip that Paul took to Jerusalem. He had been there before. He had conversed with these guys before. But this trip, I believe, is the most important because theology is at stake. There is theological integrity at stake because the gospel was being compromised by the Judaizers. And so Paul, again, is reminding us here in Galatians 2 what took place at this Jerusalem council. This assembly of church leaders, this assembly of apostles trying to figure out, do I have to be Jewish? Do I not have to be Jewish? What does it take to be a follower of Jesus? Now look again at verse 1. There's a couple of significant details I don't want us to miss in this. First off, we see that Paul took Barnabas with him. Barnabas meaning the son of encouragement. Barnabas was the guy you wanted in your church because he was just an encouraging fella. He was just a jolly old guy that just, man, every time you saw him, he's like, hey, man, fist bump, how you doing? You're doing all right? I love you, man. You're doing a good job. Like Barnabas was just that guy. And so he took Barnabas with him on this missionary journey, but also to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's going to be tough. When things are tough, you need an encourager around you. Make sure in your life, your Christian life, this is free this morning. Make sure you have encouragers around you. There's always going to be critics. Make sure you surround yourself with encouragers because they're going to be the ones that help you push forward. But here's how we know Galatians 2 is also the same story of Acts 15. Acts 15 verse 2 says that Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem. Galatians 2 verse 1 says who went with Paul to Jerusalem. It's Barnabas again. So a little bit of history there. It helps you see how the scriptures are intertwined. But another important observation, this is critical. Who else did he take with him? Titus. A young man named Titus, a guy named Titus. Why is that important? Because Titus is different than Timothy. Joe talked about this several weeks ago. Timothy was half Jewish, half Gentile. So in order to minister to the Jewish people, Timothy chose to get circumcised. All things to all people, so that I might win some, right? Titus, on the other hand, had no Jewish blood in his entire body. Titus had parents who were both Greek. He was not a Jew at all. What was, what was Paul doing? As Paul's going to meet with the Jerusalem leaders to figure out the answer to the question, do we have to be Jewish to be saved? Paul brings a little litmus test with him. He brings a little guy with him and he says, hey guys, let me tell you what, uh, what uh, God did among the Gentiles. By the way, here's my friend Titus who saw a lot of it and he's a Gentile, completely full-blooded. What do y'all think about that? <laughs> do you think he should be circumcised? What do you think, guys? What's Paul doing? He's strategic. Paul is incredibly strategic in his approach to this because Paul believes this is that important. Would the leaders of the Jerusalem church, would the apostles push the issue that you needed to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law to be saved, or would they not? And would they agree with Paul that salvation was found only in Jesus? Paul is a strategizer. He's a little sneaky. I can just see Paul approaching this, this council of these church leaders, man. Just imagine for just a moment, you had to stand before the Pope and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and whoever's in charge of the Methodist Church. I don't know who that is. And just imagine that you just come rolling in and you got your little strategic guy next to you, just a little smirk on your face like, I got y'all. I'm going to show you what's going on. That's what I imagine Paul doing, a little smirk on his face as he walks in with Titus. He's like, all right, 
Rubber's going to meet the road now. What do y'all believe? I love that here. Look at verse two with me. Paul says, I went up according to a revelation, right? So he's, he's leaving Antioch and he's going to Jerusalem and presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. So there's two meetings taking place here. We'll talk about that in just a second. Why did he do it? Paul says, I wanted to be sure. I wanted confidence that I wasn't, well, was not running and had not been running in vain. So you see in Acts 15, verse 2, you can look back there in your own time or flip there now, that Paul and Barnabas engaged the church and church leaders in really a serious discussion about the gospel that Paul was preaching. Again, they want to find a certainty in what they were saying. And when they arrive, they do two things. Paul reminds us here in Galatians 2, 2, first off, they met with the church as a whole. So they met with the Jerusalem church as a whole. And what did Paul do? What did Barnabas do? Acts 15.4 says they shared everything that God was doing in the Gentiles, that God was doing through the Gentiles, and that God was doing around the Gentiles. Paul was telling these people, let me give you a report of God's activity, what he's doing among the non-Jewish people. But Acts 15.5 is one of the most annoying verses in the entire Bible. Because in Acts 15.4, Paul says, God did all this amazing stuff. Look at Acts 15.5. Some of the believers in that church, the church in Jerusalem, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, you ready for this? It's necessary to circumcise them and to, to command them to keep the law of Moses. God's moving. Yeah, but are they circumcised? Friends, can I remind you something in the local church? I've learned this. I've been in ministry for 12 years. When God's moving, there will always be critics around you. You know that? When you are in the middle of a move of God, that's our phrase here, middle of a miracle. When you are in the middle of a move of God, there will always be critics. Right? God's moving! And the religious folks in your church stand up. Yeah, but the kids are too loud in the back. Shut up. That's a, that's a, that's a theological Greek word right there. God's moving! Yeah, but the praise team's too loud. Go away. Go stand in the hallway. I don't care. God's moving. Yeah, but we ran out of butter at the pancake breakfast. That's what religious people do. God is moving. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Can you imagine being Paul in that moment? Paul was like a no-nonsense no guy. Paul's like, man, all these people are getting saved. We're starting churches. Like, this is absolutely incredible. And some schmuck in the back stands up and goes, yeah, but are they circumcised and they follow the law? I bet Paul ripped off his sandal and threw it at the guy. <laughs> Luke just didn't write that down. Goodness. I wrote this down. I think this is important. If your default, if your default reaction to hearing about God's activity in your church is yeah, but instead of oh, wow, Check yourself. Check yourself. Friends, we don't have room for religious people here at Living Up Columbus. God's doing too much. We got to respond to God's activity with, oh, wow, what's next? Instead of, yeah, but, yeah, but. You can take your yeah, but down to the street with your but. You know? <laughs> I didn't write any of that down, so that was the Spirit of God speaking through me. <laughs> Don't get so caught up in your religious activity and preference that we miss, Freddie, 
what God's doing in us, through us, and around us, just like he was the Gentiles. That's what's happening here in Jerusalem. So Paul meets with the church as a whole, and then the second meeting happens, Galatians 2.2, Acts 15, verse 6. Paul meets with those, he says, um, that were identified as leaders. Again, Paul didn't want the Galatians questioning his apostleship and his authority, but he says, what's the goal in my meeting? Why did I meet with them? Verse 2, he said, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running, here it is, in vain. Paul was doing ministry among the Gentiles along with Barnabas. Churches were being started. And Paul says, I don't want to be doing this in vain. What was he seeking? He wanted the support of Peter, James, and John and the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. That was their, their mothership church, the sending church. That was, that was the big stuff there. He says, I, I want you guys to support what I'm doing. But don't mistake this. Paul was not seeking their theological affirmation. Paul knew what God had called him to do. Jesus personally had taught Paul the gospel, and Paul would have moved forward without the affirmation of this church. He would have kept going because he knew convictionally what Jesus had called him to do. He was certain and confident, and he was going to stand on that. But here's a truth for us that's important today. It's better to run when people are supporting you rather than standing against you. It's easier to run forward with the gospel mission when people are supporting you and cheering you on as opposed to them just standing against you. I'm so thankful for our church because I feel like 99% of the time that that's what our church does for each other. The 99% of the time, nine times out of 10, man, that we're the wind in each other's sails. Not all the time. But I know that even if you're not going to be the wind in somebody's sails, I know the convictions of a lot of the people in this church, they're still going to run without you. And it's a lot better to be the wind in somebody's sails than the barricade they have to get over. Be the wind in their sails. Support them. We've got to move the mission forward. Leave religious preferences at the door or take them to the church down the street and they'll deal with them. Let's be the wind in each other's sails. And that's what Paul wanted. Paul said, I don't need your theological affirmation because I know what God has called me to do. But... I really would prefer your support. I really wish that I, you guys would cheer me along on the sidelines and clap for me. I really wish that a couple of y'all would have some foam fingers in the background when I'm talking about what God's doing among the Gentiles. I desire that. Somebody paint your belly and show me, right? That's what Paul wanted. And thankfully, we see in the scriptures here, that was the result of the meeting. Praise God. That was the result of the meeting. Look at verse 3. He says, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. We talked about that just a moment ago. Paul took Titus with him. What was the reason? Because the whole point of this meeting was that question, do you have to be Jewish to be saved? Really, we could sum it up this way. How do you get right with God? Do you get right with God by Jesus or Jesus plus something? What's the qualifier to right standing with God? Is it just Jesus or is circumcision seal the deal? And who was Titus? A full-blooded Greek. He didn't have a Jewish bone in his body. So Paul wanted to know, if I bring this guy along and you hear what God did among the Gentiles, are you still going to make Titus get circumcised? Imagine Titus standing in the corner going, oh, God, please don't make me. You know? I really hope this doesn't happen. But through their actions, would they require Titus to do that? Paul was strategic in what he did. They were, he was essentially backing these guys into a corner. And making them answer the question, how do you get right with God? I love that about Paul. He wanted support of his message. Look at verse 4 and 6. Point number 2. 
Paul not only wanted support of the message, but also support of the messenger. The messenger. Affirmation of what he was teaching was important, but he also wanted them to support the authority in which he was sent to the Gentiles. Verse 4. So Paul says this matter, that was circumcision in Jewish law, arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ in order to enslave us. So in verse 4 here, Paul is again pointing us back to Acts chapter 15, when the Judaizers had shown up to Galatia, that church that he just planted, and they're causing trouble. The Galatians had learned about freedom in Christ, salvation in Jesus. Judaizers show up and say, eh, it's a little bit more than that, circumcision, law of Moses. Friends, remember this morning, for the Christian, we are no longer bound to the law of Moses because of Jesus. The scriptures call that in the New Testament the yoke of slavery. The law is a burden to us. But because of Jesus, we are now bound to what Romans 14 calls the law of love. The law of love is not a burden to us. This is what's known in theological circles as Christian liberty. The liberty that we have in Christ, meaning that we are now free from the bounds and the, the yoke. If you know what a yoke is, it's a, a farming implement. We're now free from the chains and the bounds of the yoke of, of sin, right? Jesus freed us from that. But also the yoke of the law. We're free from those things. Those chains are gone. And instead, we are now bound to Christ through love. There's a difference. We're freed from something. That's the law in sin for someone, that's Jesus. That's what Christian liberty actually is. It means now that because we're united with Christ and bound to Jesus, that we now have the opportunity to live for Christ, to love like Christ, to love Christ, and in all things honor him with our lives. How, why do we do that? Because Jesus has changed the inside of me that overflows to the outside of me. That's Christian liberty in action. But the Judaizers didn't like that. They wanted to bind up the Galatian people again with their rules, their rituals, and their regulations as a means to salvation. And Paul says, not on my watch, bro. Look at what he says in verse 5. Paul says, we did not give up. When the Judaizers showed up, Paul could have said, all right, all right, all right, it's not a big deal. Just chill out. Let's just talk, right? No, no, Paul says we didn't give up. We didn't submit to these people for even a moment. There wasn't like a moment of backing down in Paul's body. Why does he say that? So the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. I, I, I remember, maybe it was a YouTube clip or just something we did when we were growing up. Y'all remember um, when somebody would say something like that just frustrated you or offended you and somebody would be like, oh, no, you didn't, right? Y'all remember that? That's Paul here, man. The Judaizers are like, we're going to bind you all back up, man. You've got to follow the law of Moses. You've got to be circumcised. And Paul says, we didn't get up for a minute. No, no, you didn't. I can't do it well. So if somebody can do that better after church, that's fine. Why is that so important? Because we could be tempted to ask ourselves, like, is this really a big deal, Paul? Like, does it really matter that much? Friends, I want you to hear this from a heart of truth, a heart of grace, and a heart of love. If we really believe... If we really believe that we can do anything in addition to Jesus to be saved, then you are not really saved. Romans 10 talks about it. 
Galatians 1, 15 and 16 says, if you believe that, you're under a curse. But in Christ, we're free from the curse. That means you couldn't be saved. Right? If, if we really believe that we can do anything in addition to Jesus to be saved, then you're not really saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. That's the gospel. It's the simplistic gospel. Notice you're not part of that story. Salvation is in Jesus. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose. Nowhere in 1 Corinthians 15 does it say, and Aaron did something too. It's not in there. It's all Jesus. What do I bring to the table? Repentance and faith. That's it. That's all I bring to it. And that's simply me just doing this. <laughs> Jesus, fix it. I didn't do anything to get it. Didn't do anything to earn it. Don't do anything to secure it. I just got to open my arms up and say, Jesus, fix it. Because I messed it up. Sin messed me up. And I need Jesus. That's the gospel. We're not part of the story. It's all Jesus. We don't add to it. We don't compromise it. We don't lead people to believe they can do anything more than it. It's all Jesus. And if we teach people that you have to do more than Jesus, that is a false gospel, and we're leading people straight to hell, period. I hope we understand the seriousness of that, that salvation's found in Jesus alone. And I love there in verse 5 that we see the posture of Paul and Barnabas unwilling to compromise on the truth of the gospel. We need a lot more Paul and Barnabases in our nation today, don't we? Men and women that are willing, unwilling to compromise on the truth of the gospel. I've been reminded as I've been reading Galatians and Acts chapter 15, 16, and, and so forth there. Friends, it, it's okay for us to understand and acknowledge that the gospel is an offensive message to the unbeliever. Paul said it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It is. But it's still true. And we can't compromise on that truth. No matter what voices over here saying that we're, we're too exclusive, man, we're too mean, we're too, all these things that we're being said about Christians. No, it's the gospel. And it's true. And we stand on it. Because Jesus saves. Period. Look at verse 6. Now from those recognized as important, what they once were to me makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to me. Now listen, there's a little bit of sarcasm here by Paul, but really he's saying two things that are important, then we're going to jump to point number three. First off, Paul's telling us that his authority as an apostle was derived by his God-given calling in Acts chapter 9. Paul did not get his authority to go to the Gentiles through the other apostles or through the church in Jerusalem. It was not from their position that they sent him. He wanted their affirmation, but he didn't need them to send him to go on mission to the Gentiles, period. Secondly, this is important here. We could read that phrase, well, they added nothing to me. That's kind of like Paul's kind of being a jerk and then spreading his arms out and walking away like a chicken, you know? Paul's like, y'all didn't add nothing to me, and he just kind of tramples off. That's not what's going on here. What Paul's saying here is they didn't add anything to the message he was sent with. They didn't add anything to the message that he was going to the Gentiles with. Don't read that as a negative tone, rather positive. What he's saying is at the end of the Jerusalem council, when I left, the apostles didn't add anything on my shoulders. They simply affirmed the message that Jesus saves and the Gentiles could be part of God's family. They're affirming Paul's calling, his ministry, and his authority, which takes us to our last point. This one will go quick. Support of Paul's ministry. Paul wanted support of the ministry that he was called to do. Verses 7 through 10, we're not going to read through those again, but I want you to think of a couple things quickly. These last few verses are really the summation of what was ultimately a letter 
known as the, this letter from the Jerusalem Council that was sent to all the churches. These last three verses here, last four verses, are the outcome of that letter, where we see the support of these pillars of the church, as Paul calls them. And as I, I read these verses here, I can see Paul and Barnabas. Just, just enter into this scene with me. I can see Paul and Barnabas standing there. Perhaps the, the church in Jerusalem is in the, whatever gathering place they had. Maybe, maybe the Peter, James, and John are sitting there you know, on the, the platform with Paul as he's sharing what God is doing, and then he's engaging them in conversation privately, and they're sharing before this church. And think for just a minute why this would matter to Paul. He wanted the affirmation of Peter. Peter, who was really Jesus' right-hand man during Christ's earthly ministry. Peter, who was the same guy who had walked on water for just a few moments when he asked Jesus for permission to do so. Peter, the one who saw Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women and children with just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. The same Peter who denied Jesus on the night of his crucifixion, but just a few days later repented and became a pillar in the early church. Much of what we experience today we owe to this guy named Peter. He preached the first gospel message in the book of Acts and 3,000 people got saved. Peter was a pillar. The rock is what he was known as. Think about this for a second. John, seated there as Paul's sharing. I picture John sitting there in that chair. John, who he says in his gospel, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. We see in the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but also the gospel of John. John possessed a very unique relationship with our Lord. John possessed a very unique closeness with Jesus on earth that most people probably have never possessed before. This intimacy with Christ that most people didn't possess. He knew Jesus deeper than probably most ever could. I imagine for a second James seated there on that platform as Paul and Barnabas are sharing. Peter, this pillar. John, this one whom Jesus loved. And then you got James seated over here. Now this wasn't James the apostle. Make sure you know that. This was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that for a second. He'd grown up with Jesus. At one point in the Gospels, James called Jesus crazy. He said he was a madman and needed to be put away. But after the resurrection, everything changed. James wrote a book on the importance of faith and works, how my faith is evidenced by the works that I do as a follower of Christ. Historically, one of my favorite things about James is that he was known as Camel Knees, if you didn't know that. James historically had a nickname of Camel Knees. Do you know why? Because of the amount of time he spent on his knees in prayer. It's said that James's knees had gotten so swollen, calloused, and knobby because he spent so much time each day on his knees talking to his Lord. These weren't just random guys. These were fixtures, pillars in the church of Jerusalem. And even though Paul says, oh, their position doesn't really matter to me, this matters a little bit. You want the affirmation. That's why he went there. He wanted the affirmation of these leaders. But notice this phrase here. I think this is important. Verse 9. It says, when James, Cephas, that's Peter and John, and those recognized as pillars, there's our word. Here it is. They acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. So they're affirming Paul's calling. And then this phrase, I, I wrote this down, I think this is important. And they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles. 
I just imagine, and I hope I'm not taking too much liberty here with the Scriptures. I imagine Peter and Barnabas sharing God's, what God's activity among the Gentiles, maybe a little bit of discussion. I imagine those three guys sitting there and listening. And I imagine at the end of it, when Paul gets to done with this conversation, maybe he said something like, so that's what God did. And we're going to keep going. And we'd love your support. But no matter what you say, we are going to the Gentiles. Because God is moving and they need Jesus. And when I see that phrase, right hand of fellowship, in my mind, I picture in that moment, Peter, James, and John rising to their feet in front of this congregation. And I just may, again, I hope I'm not taking too much liberty here, but I just imagine Peter walking up to Paul and sticking out his right hand. And Paul sticking out his right hand and those two embracing and giving each other a hug. I imagine John standing up and doing the same thing. I imagine James doing the same thing. And I can just maybe, Peter going, all right, guys, go. Y'all go to the Gentiles. We'll reach the Jews because the kingdom of God is big enough for both. Let's take as many as possible as we can with us. Now, in verse 11, next week, you're going to say that there was a choppy situation that took place after this. But in that moment, seeing the unity of the church, of let's do this together. You're called to them. We're called to them. But the kingdom of God is big enough. Let's go together to where God is calling us to go. What was our question in the beginning? Remember this question? Have you ever been so convinced or convicted about something that no one could change your mind? We see that here with Paul. He wasn't going to be swayed as to what God called him to do. We gave examples in the beginning. We feel that way about a lot of things, don't we? Jump on social media for 15 minutes. You'll figure it out, what people are really convinced or convicted about. But the question I've really been wrestling with this week is this. Hey, Aaron, do you feel that way about the gospel? Are you so convinced, are you so convicted that you will stand on it no matter what the way you do a variety of other things? And God's been processing that in my soul this week, and I hope he does the same for you. Let me pray for us as our praise team comes. Lord, thanks for this time in your word this morning. God, I pray that it's been an encouragement to your church God, I also pray, Lord, that this would mobilize your church to live on mission this week in their homes, in their jobs, and whatever places you may call them to. Lord, would you take your word and move it from our ears and our minds that before we get to our cars today, God, that your word would make its place in our hearts. Because it's only once it gets to our hearts that it changes us and it calls us to action. Pray now as we sing, Lord, that this is a sweet sound through the corridors of your throne room in heaven, because Jesus is worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.